pray. Father, as we look into this portion of your word, uh, we are reminded of the high priority that you place when you boil down all of Scripture into two commands, two most critical forms of duty, to love you with all our soul and strength and our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, help us not just to think about these things. Help us, we pray, to have them uh, percolate down into our hearts, our souls, our minds, and that we might be a people who, because of your gospel, truly begin to live these things out, loving you by loving others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As I've thought about this sermon this week, my mind has gone back to my growing up years. And one of my favorite memories uh, of growing up in my home were the occasions which my mother created and put together a homemade dessert. Whenever my mother made a homemade dessert, I knew something was up. That's not something we had on a regular basis. That was a, a special occasion was coming up. It meant that someone was coming into our home. We were having guests for a meal. And I can recall so often around the dinner table, well, we had a very nice dining room table. <clears throat> We'd put the a leaf in that table, stretch it out a little longer. And we had many people in our home over the years looking back who shared not only food with us, but we shared conversation, we shared our hearts, we shared our joys, we shared our sorrows. I think of one particular individual, a, a bachelor fella in our church, Bob Kresge. Uh, he was the guy that always stood up there and rambled on in a voice that seemed rather monotonal to me. And he jingled his change and keys every time he talked, drove me crazy. But he was a nice man who loved Christ. And he had no other family, so he would join us for many special occasions. And he would be in our home and be a member of our meals. We had guest preachers. We had speakers. We had missionaries in our homes. I can remember I learned so much from just listening around that table as the conversations went on and on over a, a very wonderful meal. And then I realized that I was blessed to marry into a home where the level of hospitality was raised to an even higher level of exemplary service. Uh, Joyce's family went so far as not only did they open their table to many people for meals, but they opened their basement uh, bedroom to a single woman missionary who uh, would stay there on furlough, and uh, they hosted a youth minister in their basement there one time. I remember when I was dating Joyce, I'd always have to uh, somehow... Uh, share the space with this guy, and, um, and he and I got to know each other over time. But uh, there was just a wonderful sense of, <clears throat> of opening their home, opening their hearts to people that they got to know along the way. It wasn't about the meals. It wasn't about having a, a perfect home. It was about opening their lives to people and showing that they really cared about others. And we have felt over the years <clears throat> tremendously blessed to be invited into homes as well as to be those who have had people in our home. <clears throat> Let's think about it. <clears throat> it's just a small gesture, really. Sharing a meal. Lingering over coffee and dessert. Listening to people tell funny stories and realizing they really are funny. They have a funny personality. They have lots of humor in their life. Or listening to someone tell stories of broken dreams, of loss and sadness and realizing they're hurting, and you give a listening ear. See, my parents learned that early on there were so many joys and so many blessings that came 
when they put into practice what the scripture calls for here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, some of you, when you hear about this idea of hospitality, I can tell some of you probably are already beginning to say, well, wait a minute. I don't like this. This is not for me. Because what we oftentimes are associating with the word hospitality, which is not good, we're equating that with entertaining people. I'm not talking about entertaining people. The world uses the thought of entertaining in ways that are contrary to biblical hospitality. For example, entertaining oftentimes is emphasizing, you know, I'm going to impress you with how together I appear, how together my home appears, and how together I am as a cook or chef. That's not what we're talking about here. The world sort of focuses on making a statement about ourselves in entertaining, rather than putting the emphasis, as biblical hospitality does, on, the, on those who are welcomed into our home. We're here to make them feel comfortable. Indeed, when we think about the difference, I included a quote in your notes there, in the bulletin there, that Karen Maines wrote a book years ago about contrasting, uh, I think it's called Open Heart, Open Home, and she says this, secular entertaining is a source of human pride. Demanding, it demands perfection. It tends to foster the urge to try to impress other people. It is a rigorous taskmaster which enslaves. Isn't that true? Years ago in Virginia, we had this young couple, they kept saying, you know, we're going to have you over our house someday. I said, great. Said, we just need to change our carpet. I'm like, change your carpet? And guess what? They never did, and we never did go over there. I mean, some people just have tons of reasons why, because they have to wait till they think they have a perfect house before they can entertain. It's an enslavement. It's, it's a fact that they don't feel free to just be themselves and have people in their world. Hospitality, according to Karen Maines, however, seeks to minister. It says, this home is not mine. It is truly a gift from my master. I am his servant, and I use it as he desires. Hospitality does not try to impress, but to serve. Now, do you see the difference? Entertainment is, on the one hand, focused mostly on self, whereas hospitality is on serving and on welcoming others and showing the love of Christ in practical ways. And so I want to set before us this morning another example of what we've been looking at for a number of weeks now, at the reciprocal commands of the New Testament, which are really a, a wonderful way of, of providing practical illustrations of what it really means to love brothers and sisters in Christ. Genuine Christian love is really lived out when we offer reciprocal commands and follow them. So I want to have three principles uh, of other-centered hospitality, biblical hospitality, if you will, uh, before us this morning. First is this, first principle. Hospitality begins with the gospel opening our hearts. The gospel opening our hearts. I would suggest to you that hospitality is the fruit of a heart that's been changed by the gospel. Rather than trying to imitate other people and other forms of standards that the society seems to set for us, where we sort of feel like, you know, we have to decorate our home like house beautiful. It's not enough now just to have a clean home. Now we have to have a home that's just, a, you know, 
It has open spaces and everything coordinates in 14 pillows on the, on the sofa where you can't even sit on the sofa because there's so many pillows. That, sorry, it's a little beef I have. But, um, or other people who put so much emphasis on food preparation and fancy, elaborate recipes that take lots of time and, you know, they make a statement in terms of the way they're presented on the plates and, you know, nothing wrong with that. That's all good. But let's never lose the focus that on biblical hospitality, the focus is on serving and making others feel comfortable. And do you feel comfortable when people have got an immaculate house and you feel like you can't hardly move because it's so clean you dare not even have a crumb that falls on the floor and you know, uh, it, 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 the food is so fancy, you're like, man, I don't even know which course do I start here, which fork am I using? And it, it, it almost says, it sends the wrong signal, whereas I could have had many a wonderful meal on paper plates that I felt very relaxed and very welcomed and very comfortable, along with folk, folks who have served from very fancy food as well, sure. But let's think about the word here in the text in Greek. The word is... Uh, actually, philoxnima. That's not right. Philoxenia is the way it's, sorry, that's the way it should be pronounced. And it means love of strangers, love of outsiders. You know, Philadelphia comes from phileo, <clears throat> strangers. So in the gospel, God puts this into practice where he he receives, he welcomes undeserving outsiders. He welcomes strangers to his table. He welcomes sinners to sit around his table and enjoy fellowship with him. Jesus says, I find it interesting in Luke chapter 22, he said to his disciples, I strongly desire to eat this Passover with you. I want to have this time of fellowship with you in this very significant meal knowing that it was the last time he would do so before he died. Jesus, in breaking bread with his disciples at the Passover, knew that he was about to be broken for their sin as he broke that bread. And as he poured out the wine and passed it around that meal, the meal of remembrance, he knew that his own lifeblood was going to be shed and poured out for sinners. We who have no right to share the meal with our saving king, against whom we have rebelled, against whom we have gone our own way, he nonetheless invites us to partake, to enjoy fellowship with him. And every Lord's Supper is a wonderful opportunity to be pointed to that final day when we who are saved by grace through Jesus Christ, we're all going to be welcome to gather like those who also have this precious faith in common, and we will gather for the marriage feast of the Lamb. There's a day of great hospitality in heaven someday where we will enjoy our host, Jesus Christ, welcoming us, making us enjoy the privileges of being in fellowship with him. We who are outcasts are made members of his family. And then we are able to given a seat around the table of grace, as it were. Jesus' hospitality is the impetus of Christian hospitality. I couldn't help but think of the words there in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul reflects on the fact that there were many in the church there in Ephesus at one time <clears throat> who were indeed just that, outsiders. They were strangers. He says, 
you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated. You were strangers of, to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ, and we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints. We are of God's household. We are God's family. I find two wonderful examples of this principle of the gospel bringing us an open heart and then an open home. <clears throat> we find them in the Acts chapter 16. Maybe you want to make your way there to Acts 16. It's very interesting. Two powerful examples of the gospel reaching the hearts of individuals who are spiritual outcasts, and then it turns their hearts open toward Christ and toward other people, and they open their homes in hospitality. The first we read about is Lydia. <clears throat> Lydia is a person who was, I would call her a religious person. She was a person who prayed. She was a person who had a heart that was open toward the things of God, but she had never truly been regenerated. She had never really come to faith in Christ, and yet God, we read in verses 14 and 15, he opens her heart. <clears throat> the power of the gospel is that he changed her, the condition of her heart, and she's made alive in Christ. And through repentance and through her faith, now she does what? She responds in this new change of heart to opening her home. It's amazing. The first thing that she does in Christian hospitality, she insists in verses 14 and 15, come into my house and stay. She prevailed upon us. Here's Paul, the ministering missionary. He said, come and stay in my home. I'll be glad to show you hospitality. It's amazing. An even more dramatic example follows that same chapter where you have a pagan, unbelieving man who I'm sure must have been rather hardened and who was not very tender-hearted toward Christians at all, just the opposite. But what an amazing example of gospel transformation when we talk about the jailer in this town of Philippi. The man who makes sure that there's nobody who ever escapes from this jail. If they do, then he knows he's going to lose his life. And on a night in which God caused an earthquake, there was a whole lot of shaking going on because in that process of all of the uh, disturbance and the violent shaking, the doors on this jail begin to open and somehow all of the prisoners now have access to being uh, set free. And so this jailer's panicking. He knows that there are these people who've been, uh, been beaten as Christians and they're singing and they're uh, praising God in the middle of the night and they're talking about Jesus all the time. He knows these people are there and he, they, these two people come to say, listen, don't take your life. You're not going to die necessarily. We're not going anywhere. And in that moment, he says, what do I need to do to be made right with God like you folks? What do I, what do I need to do to, to have what you have? And Paul, of course, says to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. And then notice what the scriptures say. Acts 16. The gospel that was proclaimed to him is a gospel that he receives by faith and his heart is changed. And look at the dramatic difference in this man who had no concerns about just beating on these men and making sure that somebody just beat the, the living I mean, I can't imagine all the bloody mess that must have happened for these men. And after a result of the gospel, look at how his heart's changed. Number one, verses 31-34. He welcomes the same Paul and Silas that have just he made sure they got beaten really well and locked up. He welcomes them into his home. 
He ushers them into his own living space. And then not only does that, he, involved, he gets involved in doing what somebody did to me uh, several weeks ago in cleaning all my bloody wounds. I fell off my bicycle, for those of you who don't know, a couple weeks ago, walked into the, uh, you know, the care center, what do you call those things, the um, clinics. Walked in, and I mean, I'm a bloody mess everywhere. He gets involved in cleaning the bloody wounds that these men had. That's not a pleasant job. And then not only does that, but he realizes they're probably hungry. They probably haven't had a decent thing to eat in a long time. And he says, he, it says in the text, he sets food before them. It's an amazing example of biblical hospitality. He's ministering. He's serving. It's not about making a statement about him. It's about showing forth the gospel of, of love to those in need. I will say again, hospitality is the outward act of compassionately welcoming people into our hearts and into our homes. It's not about trying to impress people. It's a matter of doing so in a way that says, I am glad to serve you. And Peter's reminding those who are serving, and maybe it's become a burden because maybe Peter's realizing that in the time in which he wrote, various Christians were doing wonderful, ethically appropriate things. They were keeping the laws. They were honoring Christ. They were living morally upright lives, and they were suffering all sorts of fallout from that. They were being persecuted. They were being arrested. They were being mocked. And Peter is realizing that some of these people may have lost their homes. They may have been jailed for a while. Maybe not. Maybe couldn't even go home anymore. And so he's realizing, listen, I've got to take some of these people into my home. I've got to add another mouth to feed. I've got to share another place for someone to sleep on the floor. It's inconvenient. I've got to put up with this. He says, don't complain about that. Realize this is an opportunity to serve other members of the body. You say, well, I've got a long way before that's going to happen in my life. I've got to get a bigger place. I've got to learn to cook better. And I've got to become a little bit more outgoing. May I suggest to you the first step in probably beginning to move in that direction is not only to embrace the gospel by faith, but then is to go through the process of having the Lord begin to change our thinking about ourselves. Because we tend to think about ourselves the most. So if you look at Romans chapter 12, I don't know if you can find your way there, but very interesting how Paul says, like, in view of all the mercies that God has shown us in the gospel, which he's laid out in 11 chapters of unbelievably wonderful theological and doctrinal reflections on the wonders of God's atonement and his grace and his gospel of mercy he's shown to sinners who don't deserve it. He talks about, well, let's think about the implications of this. If that's true that God now accepts, embraces, and we are acceptable in His sight, what does that mean now? How do I respond to this? What, what's the appropriate way to sort of live out my thankfulness to God? And he says in verse 3, we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. What does that mean when it comes to hospitality? It means that we're not to try to feel like we have to put on airs before people and say, I'm going to try to impress you with being better than I really am. I'll just be who I am. Because I'm no better than you are. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I don't have to impress anybody. Christ accepts me. He receives me because of Christ and his death and his righteousness imputed to me. Verse 6 of chapter 12, all of us have differing gifts. I don't have to be like everybody else. 
Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. That is, show that you're concerned about other people and their concerns and needs, not just your own. And then he says in verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, which means that they read between the lines. Some people were having a rough go of it. It was difficult to make ends meet. And he says, be generous. If God's been blessed to you, share with others. And then he says, pursuing hospitality. Make it something that you move toward over time. Make it something you incorporate into your lifestyle. Back at that time, perhaps, obviously they had no hotels. They had no, you know, Marriott's or whatever. And so there were occasions where people needed a place to stay. There were times in which there are no cracker barrels. If you're traveling, there's no place to, to get a good meal, you know. And so you would stay in a home of another believer. And what the gospel does is it opens our eyes so that we don't become so focused on ourselves. We open our eyes to see there are other people in the world who may have needs that we can certainly get involved in. And one is to open my home or open my world. Say Some of you say, well, I still live at home or I still live in this very small place or I live in an apartment and so I can't. Okay, I understand that. I, I, I hear you. And so what I would suggest is there's different kinds of hospitality that show at open home. That means you would say, can we do breakfast together? Meet me at a restaurant. That's hospitality. Pick up the bill for them. Or buy them coffee and say, let's go talk. There are different ways of doing hospitality. It doesn't have to be just in your home. But it, it goes back to raising the question, has the gospel changed the way you look at yourself enough that you want to open your heart and open your home to others as you're able to? And because Jesus Christ has met, has, makes much of us in the gospel, we are free to make much of our fellow believers. Because we don't need to impress them with who we are. We're here to serve them because Christ has made much of us before the Father. All right, that's the first point. We could talk much more about that. But I want to move on to uh, principle number two. Hospitality broadens and deepens gospel family fellowship. It broadens and deepens gospel family fellowship. You see, gospel love is a welcoming love. It reaches out and includes those who are different from us. Uh, some churches, as they get bigger and bigger, they find themselves oftentimes creating and organizing their fellowship opportunities around people who share a number of similarities. For example, you have a group of all the young married couples, and you have a group of singles, you have a group of uh, widowers and, and widows, and you have a group of families with kids, and they group people around all these similarities. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, and I understand why they do that, but I would just suggest to you that that's not the way the early church did fellowship. They did not group their fellowship with those who shared a certain marital status or age or socioeconomic status. The early church celebrated the diversity of, their, of, of various church members so that they would welcome people into whatever, whoever they are. You're part of our family, so we welcome you. Whether it's a person who was a master and a slave, a bond slave, they would still fellowship together in the church. You see, widows were not left out of the early church. Singles were not left out of the early church. Lonely people always had a seat around the table. And one of the reasons that Paul got so upset with the church there in Corinth 
is because of the lack of love that was demonstrated at a love feast, an opportunity to gather to the church together there in Corinth and to show hospitality to everyone in the church family, to have a meal together, to celebrate our love. And here were these people who were well-to-do, bringing in fancy food and the best of wine and sitting down at their table and serving their food on their table and just wolfing it down, enjoying it, sitting back, laughing, having a great old time. And there's people over here who had nothing to bring to the meal. Totally left out. They didn't share the food. They, they just ate it themselves and left these people off by themselves. Paul's like, man, that's outrageous. And so no wonder he got concerned over that. Now, what does that mean about you and me? Are there factions in our church in terms of the different groups that we sort of orient ourselves toward? Do we tend to sort of hang out with people that are like us and share the similarities that we tend to share in common and that's the people that we tend to hang out with and have fellowship with? I'm going to encourage us to break down those barriers if there are any. I don't know. Invariably there are. And think about including somebody for lunch or supper sometime that you normally would not socialize with. You don't have a whole lot in common with them. Maybe they're a different age bracket. Maybe they're, now you have to be careful here. If you're a single woman, having single men, I realize that that may not be appropriate. So use your common sense. But the point here is that make a point to extend an invitation to someone who may be alone, a widow or widower, a divorced man or divorced woman, an unmarried man or unmarried woman. Include them in whatever you're doing and say, can you join us? We'd love to have you. Many of these people live alone and eat alone on a regular basis. I remember when my father died, um, my mother did not offer as much hospitality uh, in her home as she once did when my dad was living. And I always was so touched every time my mother told me that someone called her up and said, would you join us? We're going to such and such place. We'd love to have you come with us and pick her up and take her to wherever they went. And she just loved that. She was a social, uh, social woman. She loved to have be in fellowship with people. And I always appreciated hearing those who, who included her in that sense. And so I would like to just encourage us to expand our circle of inclusion of people that we normally would share a meal with. You say, well, I don't know, this seems sort of radical to me. I, I don't understand. I'm not real comfortable with this. Can I show you how radical it was if Luke, in Luke's gospel, chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, you want to know what the nature of the kingdom is here? It's not just trying to make friends and be nice and serve other people as if that's what Christian love is about. To be, be sort of showing kindness to someone or generosity to someone so that they'll do it just right back to you. And so you tend to find someone who has great means and ability to, to, to actually offer you something nice in return. Look at Luke 14, page 1240 in your pew Bible, verse 12, where Jesus talks about including people who are not going to be able to reciprocate. It's an amazing statement. He says there in verse 12, um, when you gave a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your relatives, or rich neighbors. By the way, that's hyperbole. He's not saying you can never eat with your fam family or friends. He's saying, in comparison, 
be sure to include others who are not those family and friends, um, uh, lest they also invite you in return and repayment comes to you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, he's not making an absolute statement. He's making a comparative statement and sort of making an exaggerated point in order to make a point. What am I saying here? I'm just saying pray about it. Say, Lord, give me a desire to meet new people and to write down their name and find out their contact information and, make, and invite them. Invite them into your world. Invite them into your home on some occasion. I find it challenging. You have to work ahead on this. We have done it many times where our family would say, okay, we're just going to have a meal ready. We're just going to invite somebody. Everybody's got plans. I'm sorry, going somewhere. I'm sorry, going somewhere. Else. I'm like, That's okay. Sometimes you have to work at it. Sometimes you have to plan ahead. And, but how fun it is to invite someone you know that cannot reciprocate. Why? Because they're the person that probably is most needy for fellowship. They're the ones that need to be sitting down at somebody's table and listen, have somebody listen to them, show that they are valuable. You say, well, I've attended this church for a while, you know, and I just don't feel very connected. I've heard people say that to me over the years. And I, I think to myself, you know, you know what a great way to respond to that is? Invite someone that you don't know to your home for a meal. You'll get to know them. You will get to know them. You might find they're crazy. They're, they're a little uh, eccentric. They might be a little annoying. You'll find that they have some strange habits. You're going to get to know them, though. And we get beyond all of the politeness and, hi, how are you? Oh, I'm fine on Sunday morning. And you begin to find out real people have real problems, real burdens, real struggles, and real joys. And it will expand your circle of people that you know as you open your heart and open your home. And your life will be enriched. Now, I'm not here just to toot my horn, but I am saying to you, I've done a lot of thinking about years and years of how we've done this. We have a guest book that my wife and I started in 1985. Uh, I know that sounds like I've been along. Uh, we've been married a long time. We were actually married in 1980. This is in Bolton, Massachusetts. We lived there. I was on staff at a church, and we started asking people whenever we had them in our home, hey, would you sign our guest book? It's fascinating going through this thing. I'd forgotten all the people we had in our home at some point, including some, you know, since we've been here, all, every missionary speaker that ever spoke in our church, you know, years ago, and all sorts of fascinating people along the way who I, who knows where they are now. It is just an amazing way in which you find your life so enriched. Our kids were exposed to so many fascinating people as they sat around that table. They might have said, well, I was bored out of my mind at the time, but I'm telling you, They've learned amazing things around that table. Your life is enriched. Your life is enriched. So don't wait to be invited. Reach out in love. Jesus did not wait for you to reach out to him. He sought you out. He sought me out when I was wandering away from him. And so hospitality gives us an opportunity to do that. Very quickly, I want to make one more point here. I'm not here to try to make you feel guilty if you don't have... Tons of people in your home. I'm just offering an opportunity for you to express love in a new way for some of us, and it will really, truly deepen your relationships. Number three, I want to make sure that you understand that hospitality is a launching pad for gospel ministry. It's a launching pad for gospel ministry. You see, as the gospel spread in the first century, they couldn't meet up in large facilities like this. They didn't have fellowship halls like we are blessed to have. 
In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, we read that every day the believers gathered in the temple, which is true, they did have one large worship center there in Jerusalem, in the temple, and they met from house to house. They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as Messiah. There was teaching going on, there's meeting in homes, and that's where the ministry of Paul took place. If you look at Acts 20, 20, Paul says he went from home to home as he sought to make Christ known and met with various people in their own homes. And I came across this quote from a book called Evangelism in the Early Church by Michael Green. I think I put it in your notes. It says this. He concludes, after studying the book of Acts in early church history, one of the most important methods for spreading the gospel in antiquity was by the use of, it wasn't crusades, it wasn't big picnics, it wasn't big concerts with famous singers coming into town. He says the, the most effective or important methods of spreading the gospel in antiquity was by the use of homes. People opening their homes. Have you ever thought of your home as a hub for evangelism and ministry? Let's think of a biblical example of Cornelius. Here's a man who is a career military officer. He had some very important responsibilities in the army. He was a religious man, but he's not regenerated. But God, by his grace, directed him and Peter's paths together at a time when God wanted to see Cornelius come to Christ. And so Peter goes out of his comfort zone as a Jew who grew up following kosher laws and regulations. The Lord now makes it very clear to him it's okay to go into a non-Jew home, a non-kosher home. So he steps into Cornelius's home. Oh, that's a radical thing for him to do. But he does it because the gospel says, listen, that doesn't matter anymore. So he goes into the home, he explains the gospel to this Cornelius guy, and Cornelius was so excited that look what he did in chapter 10, verse 24, Acts 10, 24. Cornelius had called together his relatives and his close friends in his home. It's amazing how the home becomes a real launching pad for the gospel. Some of the most meaningful spiritual discussions have been taking place over a kitchen table, over a dining room table, over a picnic table in the backyard. When Matthew came to faith, what does he do? He threw a party, invited all of his unbelieving friends to come in there and wanted them to meet Jesus. Some months ago, my dear brother Ron Plasinski, who is so good at giving us helpful articles and all sorts of suggestions, gave us an article about evangelism and hospitality. It was written by a very well-known expert in this area of evangelism, and he's an expert in the seminary he's from, and he made this comment. He says, the key to evangelism in the 21st century is going to be hospitality. Now, are you thinking along with this line? He says, in a post-Christian society, one of the most strategic turfs to engage unbelievers is in our own homes. Think about it. People are lonely. People don't share meals together as much as they once did. Everybody's got their screens. Everybody's off doing their own thing. People don't join together. Families are fragmented these days. He says, not massive crusades, not concerts, not dramas. Inviting people to dinner is a wonderful setting to help put the gospel on display. You can, op you can ask open-ended questions. Get people talking. 
non-threatening. You can tell your story of God's grace and mercy. And the article ends with this very good quote. He says, don't ever underestimate the power of your dining room or your living room as a launching pad for new life and hope and ministry and mission. It can be in our own home. Came across another quote. I thought this was quite well done. You might want to write this one down. This is by Ralph Neighbor. Okay, I'm not making the name up. I'm not talking about your neighbors. Ralph Neighbor said this. It's hard for people really to believe we want them in heaven if we don't want them in our living room. Ouch. That's good. That's good. When we first came here years ago, we, we got involved at Stony Brook University. We hosted an international student and his wife from China. Um, we invite, included them. Uh, his name was Baishi and Lian Wong. I can still remember them. I pray for them all the time. Uh, we invite them to all of our celebrations, our Thanksgiving, our Christmas, or whatever, church things. We just These people were loving getting to know the American culture and getting to know a family in town. I brought together, I brought with me this morning a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosario Butterfield. She is a former Syracuse University lesbian women's studies professor who, having made contact with a pastor who wrote a letter to her, having read her scathing letter of rebuke for promise keepers, this man and his wife invited her to his home for a meal with he and his wife and this professor. And through the gift of hospitality, began to listen to this woman, began to sow seeds in her life, began to encourage her to read the scriptures, which she had never done as an English professor. So he just sort of said, well, you know, you already read the Bible. It's fascinating. You've got all kinds of genres and all kinds of drama and whatever. And so she starts reading the Bible. And guess what? The Bible radically changes her. She leaves her lesbian lifestyle and is now married to a Presbyterian pastor. Praise God. I'm going to close with this. Recently, I was on the phone with our son, Jonathan, and his wife, Kelly. They were getting ready to pull up stakes from Ohio and move to Illinois to go to seminary. And so they had a number of people that they wanted to have in their home share a meal with them before they left. And they made a point before they left. They lived in an apartment complex. The man upstairs was drunk every day. The man next door had a barking German shepherd, scared me to death, and walking in there, rough looking guy, he's got the skull, outline of a skull thing that is illuminated on his Jeep. He's a rough looking guy, but he was harmless. But Jonathan and Kelly said, before we leave, we'd like to have that guy in our home, his name is Ron. So they made a point to say, Ron, we'd like to have you over for a meal. So he came across the hallway and joined them for a meal. And over that meal, they shared stories, they listened, they laughed, they talked, found out that Ron was really a very lonely guy. And the more they talked, as it came to the end, when Jonathan said, listen, I want to give you this, he gave him a Bible, and Ron began to cry. I don't think it's been a long time since he cried. And he, Ron said to my son and his wife, I cannot tell you when the last time somebody had me in their home, and you people are really different made a powerful impact in this man's life. Did they have anything in common? 
just the same hallway they got their mail in. They had nothing in common, really, except they had a love for him. Why? Because they opened up their hearts, because the gospel opens up our homes and our hearts in love because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, as we think of the wonder and amazing hospitality that you extend to us, we are deeply and profoundly amazed to be welcomed at your table. But Lord, we thank you that that's what the gospel provides to us. We are freely and warmly welcomed to come just as we are. And we thank you, Lord, that today we can celebrate the Lord's Supper together, that you are inviting us to come. You're inviting us to be reminded of what you've done for us, of your great love, a love that reached out to us and you opened your heart toward us, Lord, and then you opened our hearts to love you in return. I pray, Lord, this will be a sweet time of fellowship with you as we reflect on the wonders of your love. And in so doing, Lord, would you begin to open our hearts to be welcoming of others into our homes and in our own world, in our hearts, in whatever way we can, Lord, to be hospitable people, using the opportunities to be gospel, people on mission for the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.